Introduction to Nonviolence by Theodore Paulin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1 Introduction on Terms In the storm we found each other. In the storm we clung together. These words are found in the opening paragraphs of Hey Yellowbacks, the war diary of a conscientious objector. Ernest L. Meyer uses them to describe the psychological process by which a handful of men, a few professors and a lone student at the University of Wisconsin grew into unity because they opposed the First World War, when everyone around them was being carried away in the enthusiasm which marked the first days of American participation. If there had been no storm, they might not have discovered their affinity. But as it was, despite the disparity of their interests and backgrounds, they found themselves in agreement on the most fundamental of their values. When all the rest chose to go another way, by standing together they all gained strength for the ordeals through which each must go, and they were filled with the spirit of others before them, and far removed from them, who had understood life in the same way. The incident may have been taken as symbolic of the experience through which pacifists have gone in the Second World War too. Men and women of many creeds, of diverse economic backgrounds, of greatly divergent philosophies, with wide variations in education, have come together in the desire to sustain one another and aid one another in making their protest against war. Each in his own way has refused to participate in the mass destruction of human life which war involves, and by that refusal has been united by the strongest bonds of sympathy with those of his fellows who have done likewise. But it is the storm that has brought unity. When the sky is clear, there will be a memory of fellowship together, but there will also be a realization that in the half-light we have seen only one aspect of each other's being, and that there are enormous differences between us. Our future hope of achieving the type of world we want will demand a continuation of our sense of unity despite our diversities. At present, pacifism is no completely integrated philosophy of life. Most of us would be hard-pressed to define the term pacifist itself. Despite the fact that according to the Latin origins of the word, it means peacemaker, it is small wonder that our non-pacifist friends think of the pacifists as a negative obstructionist, because until the time came to make a negative protest against the evil of war, we ourselves all too often forgot that we were pacifists. In other times, if we had been peacemakers at all, we have thought of ourselves merely as doing the duty of citizens, and in attempting to overcome some of the causes of conflict both within our domestic society and in the relations between nations. We have willingly merged ourselves with other men of goodwill, whose aims and practices were almost identical to ours. Since the charge of negativism strikes home, many pacifists defend themselves by insisting that they stand primarily for a positive program of which war resistance is only a prerequisite. They oppose war because it is evil in itself, but they oppose it also because the type of human brotherhood for which they stand can be realized only when war is eliminated from the world. 
Their real aim is the creation of a new society, long and imperfect though that creation process may be. They share a vision, but they are still groping for the means of movement forward towards its achievement. They are generally convinced that some means are inappropriate to their ends, and that to use such means would automatically defeat them, but they are less certain about the means which will bring some measure of success. One section of the pacifist movement believes that it has discovered a solution to the problem in what it calls non-violent direct action. This group derives much of its inspiration from Gandhi and his non-violent movement for Indian independence. For instance, the Fellowship of Reconciliation has a committee on non-violent direct action which concerns itself with applying the techniques of the Gandhi movement to the solution of pressing social issues which are likely to cause conflict within our own society, especially discrimination against racial minorities. As a textbook, this group has been using Krishnalal's Shrintani's analysis of the Gandhi procedures, War Without Violence. The advocates of non-violent direct action believe that their method can bring about the resolution of any conflict through the ultimate defeat of the forces of evil and the triumph of justice and goodwill. In a widely discussed pamphlet, If We Should Be Invaded, issued just before the outbreak of the present war, Jesse Wallace Hunam of the War Resisters League maintained that non-violent resistance would be more effective even in meeting an armed invasion than would reliance upon military might. Many pacifists have accepted the general thesis of the advocates of non-violent direct action without analysing its meaning and implications. Others have rejected it on the basement of judgments just as superficial. Much confusion has crept into the discussion of the principle and into its application because of the constant use of ill-defined terms and partially formulated ideas. It is the purpose of the present study to analyse the positions of both the friends and opponents of non-violent direct action within the pacifist movement in the hope of clarifying thought upon this vitally important question. Before we can proceed with our discussion, we must make a clear distinction between non-violence as a principle, accepted as an end in itself, and non-violence as a means to make other desired ends. Much of the present confusion in pacifist thought arises from a failure to make this distinction. On the one hand, the absolute pacifist believes that all men are brothers. Therefore, he maintains that the supreme duty of every individual is to respect the personality of every other man, and to love him no matter what evil he may commit, and no matter how greatly he may threaten his followers or the values which the pacifist holds most dear. Under no circumstances can the pacifist harm or destroy the person who does evil. He can only love and sacrificial goodwill to bring about conversion. This is his highest value and his supreme principle. Though the heavens should fall, or he himself and all else he cherishes be destroyed in the process, he can place no other value before it. To the pacifist, who holds such a position, non-violence is imperative, even if it does not work. By his very respect for the personality of the evildoer, and his insistence upon maintaining the bond of human brotherhood, he has already achieved his highest purpose and has won his greatest victory. 
but much of the present pacifist argument in favour of non-violence is based rather upon its expediency. Here, we are told, is a means of social action that works in achieving the social goals to which pacifists aspire. Non-violence provides a moral force which is more powerful than any physical force. Whether it be used by the individual or by the social group, it is, in the long run, the most effective way of overcoming evil and bringing about the triumph of good. The literature is full of stories of individuals who have overcome highwaymen or refractory neighbours by the power of love. More recent treatments such as Richard Gregg's Power of Nonviolence present story after story of the successful use of nonviolent resistance by groups against political oppression. The history of the Gandhi movement in India has seemed to provide proof of its expediency. Even the argument in Aldous Huxley's Ends and Means that we can achieve no desired goal by means which are inconsistent with it still regards nonviolent action as a means for achieving some other end rather than an end in itself. So prevalent has such thinking become among pacifists that it is not surprising that John Lewis, in his closely reasoned book, The Case Against Pacifism, bases his whole attack on the logic of the pacifist position upon the theory that pacifists must, as he does hold other values above their respect for individual human personalities. Even in speaking of absolute pacifism, he says, the most fundamental objection to war is based on the conviction that violence and the taking of human life being themselves wrong cannot lead to anything but evil. Thus he defines the absolute pacifist as one who accepts the ends and means argument of Huxley, which is really an argument based upon expediency, rather than defining him correctly as one who insists that violence and the taking of human life are the greatest evils under any conditions and therefore cannot be justified even if they could be used for the achievement of highly desirable ends. Maintaining, as Lewis does, that respect for every human personality is not their highest value, non-pacifists attack pacifism almost entirely on the ground that in the present state of world society it is not expedient, that it is impractical. Probably much of the pacifist defense of the position is designed to meet these non-pacifist arguments, and to persuade non-pacifists of goodwill that they can really best serve their highest values by adopting the pacifist technique. Such reasoning is perfectly legitimate even for the absolutist, but he should recognize it is for what it is, a mere afterthought to his acceptance of non-violence as a principle. The whole absolutist argument is this. 1. Since violence to any human personality is the greatest evil, I can never commit it. 2. But at the same time, it is fortunate that non-violent means of overcoming evil are more effective than violent means, so I can serve my highest value, respect for every human personality, and at the same time serve the other values I hold, or, to say the same thing in positive terms, I can achieve my other ends only by employing means which are consistent with those ends. On the other hand, many pacifists do in fact hold the position that John Lewis is attacking and base their acceptance of pacifism entirely on the fact that it is the best means of obtaining the sort of social or economic or political order that they desire. 
others in balancing the destruction of violent conflict against what they concede might be gained by it say that the price of social achievement through violent means is too high that so many of their values are destroyed in the process of violence that they must abandon it entirely as a means and find another which is less destructive different as are the positions of the absolute and relative pacifists in practice they find themselves united in their logical condemnation of violence as an effective means for bringing about social change hence there is no reason why they cannot join forces in many respects only a relatively small proportion even of the absolutists have no interest whatsoever in bringing about social change and are thus unable to share in this aspect of pacifist thinking end of the first chapter to introduction to nonviolence by theodore pauling read by adam tompkins